let you know a few things that are taking place. Next Sunday, Easter Sunday, we don't have a five o'clock teaching service um, because we have a special six o'clock concert, Easter concert, where we'll be celebrating uh, the resurrection. And so that will be at six o'clock. We're taking the five and seven, putting them together, having a big concert. We're going to be preaching the gospel as well that evening and finishing Easter Sunday uh, with, a, with a great flourish. But if you've got your new Revival Times, then you'll see on page four that the week after that, we will be starting a new series um, on the 12th of April. And this new series is we are going to do an in-depth teaching on spiritual warfare. What it is and what it isn't and how we uh, participate in it. And so uh, from going from this more of a sort of snapshot of historical revivals, we're going very strongly into uh, the scriptures about spiritual warfare in all its different forms. Um, for example, spiritual warfare is not just loud tongues, it's also the battle for the mind. So we'll be looking at the strategies of the enemy, how Satan operates at different levels in personal spiritual warfare, uh, in global spiritual warfare. We'll also be looking at um, how we engage in spiritual warfare, what are the weapons of our warfare that are mighty, and also looking at some of the excesses of uh, people when people get so focused on spiritual warfare that they actually get off to an extreme. So that's what we'll be doing, uh, and that will be starting a week on Sunday. Well, today we're finishing by looking at a brief overview of William Booth and the Salvation Army. And um, behind me, straight away, you see the symbol of the Salvation Army and uh, its motto, which is pretty militant, isn't it? Blood and fire. And then you've got the cross right there in the middle and the big S for salvation and then the crossed swords, the swords of the Spirit, blood and fire. And uh, just to say, all of these snapshots of revival, British revival, right through the ages, right from the beginning when Britain was first evangelized, and the Celtic churches, all these are in different chapters of my book, Land of Hope and Glory, and you can get a copy of this for three pounds, and then you'll be able to dip in and look at these revivals as you wish. Now, it's important for us to have an understanding of such moves of God, because as I said last week and weeks before, God, God works through the generations, okay? So just because we are the current generation that's on the earth today doesn't mean God is thinking, oh, okay, day one. It might be day one for us, but it's certainly not day one for God. It's 2,000 years and counting. And also, when we look at how God moves in power during revival times throughout the history, we see principles of God that are there in Scripture, but we also see them acted out in society. Most of the revivals, well, probably all of the revivals that take place that I've recorded in this short book, uh, take place in times of great darkness. And so when things get dark, without knowing your church history, you might think, well, this is the end. Um, uh, there's never going to be a resurgent of strong, vibrant Christianity. It's over. But if you look at the history of revivals, you find that every time that there is a darkness, God is looking to raise up a fresh people of light. And so uh, this is important to encourage us for where we are right now. Well, the Salvation Army uh, is always linked to its founder, William Booth. So we're going to begin by looking at him. And uh, he, uh, when William Booth was, was uh, very established and the Salvation Army was established, in fact, just before William Booth's death, there is a quote that he gives. In 1904, he was invited to meet with King Edward VII. And uh, King Edward VII had an autograph book where you would sign that the fact that you'd come and visited at the palace and who you were. And this is what William Booth wrote near the end of his life in the autograph book of the King of England in 1904. He wrote, Your Majesty... Some men's ambition is art, some men's ambition is fame, 
Some men's ambition is gold. My ambition is the souls of men. And uh, William Booth had this right from the beginning. He was a soul winner. And uh, there was nothing more important to him than reaching out to lost souls and bringing them to Christ. He dedicated his life to preaching the good news to the poor, literally to the poor. Just before his death in 1912, uh, many around him suggested that he should take things a little easier. He, he was getting on. And uh, he said this to them when they told him to, to re- basically, why don't you go into retirement? And William Booth said this at the end of his life. While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison in and out, in and out as they do, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. And this is how William Booth lived his life. He was a warrior against sin and Satan and its subsequent effects on society. Booth when he was converted, was converted as a Methodist in his hometown of Nottingham. Last Sunday, and all these uh, series have been recorded, and you can can go to back series and what we've done up on our media center on our our website, kt.org. And last Sunday, we spent some time looking at the primitive Methodists. We've looked at John Wesley as well, and the Methodists, and the primitive Methodists that started early on in the 1800s, they started because they were concerned that, that a lot of, of, of the Methodism that was around at the time had lost its cutting edge, was no, no longer soul-focused or expansionist, but had sort of folded in on itself. And uh, the price of the Methodist success was that they were now putting all their energies into keeping all of the churches that they'd planted going and all the people that were there uh, pastored, and they'd forgot to go out into the highways and the byways and to preach the gospel. We saw how radical these primitive Methodists were with their, their focus on going into places and taking them for the devil and outdoor meetings. Well, William Booth was affected by the uh, primitive Methodists as he grew. And um, as a teenager, he began street preaching and standing up for justice. He lost his job at a pawnbroker's for refusing to work on Sundays. Eventually, he moved to London to gain employment and began open-air preaching at Kennington Common. We've got a picture of him in his relatively early ministerial uh, times. This is one of his tent crusades. This is before the Salvation Army was uh, uh, born. Uh, People sometimes think that William Booth was in the Salvation Army all the way from the beginning, but he wasn't. He he was a a very famous and well-established Methodist preacher and an evangelist. He was fire-filled in his preaching. In fact, his local Methodist church withdrew his membership and kicked him out because he was so strong on going out and winning souls. Other Methodists trained him in the ministry, though, and sent him out as what we call a Methodist circuit preacher that would move from church to church preaching the gospel. And uh, he was a phenomenal hit with his preaching. He would, he, he would be what we call today a conference preacher. You know, when you get these conference preachers, um, they, they get so famous and so popular that some of them don't even have a, 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 a church that they're rooted in. They go from conference to conference to conference, and uh, thousands of people turn out, and they're very, very popular and very, very powerful in their ministries. Well, this is what, this is what was happening to William Booth. Uh, he, he, he was hitting congregations like a cyclone, His preaching soon averaged 23 converts a day. He didn't just preach in churches and tents, as you see uh, behind us, but but he would witness on the streets. He wasn't afraid to witness anywhere to anybody. Uh, In a space of a couple of months, in some of his preaching, he made 1,700 converts in a couple of months. This still at the age of 26. Soon he found himself called to be a Methodist pastor of a very large church in Gateshead, which incidentally was where I was born, and and a very strong area for Methodism 
and primitive Methodism. And in, his, in a biography, uh, we read about this time as he was ministering and preaching in this very large church in Gateshead. I mean, he, he had, if you were talking about being a pastor or a minister, he had peaked at a very young age when it came to a large congregation. He had everything you would think that, that, that a, a preacher would want. But in this biography, The General Next to God, we find this, that time and time again, his eyes would stray from the 1,000-strong congregation of Gateshead's Bethesda Chapel to the miles of mean slate roofs beyond the chapel's windows. The thought obsessed him. In how many of those houses is the name of Christ never mentioned? Why am I here with this crowded chapel of people who want to hear my message? Why am I not outside bringing the message of God to those who don't want it? The Methodists didn't know to, how to handle Booth. He was a great asset to their movement, but also he had this desire to go out and preach the gospel, a soul winner, a church grower, and he refused to toe the party line. They were having difficulty to, to understand the full-blown role of somebody in the five-fold ministry calling of evangelist, and they were trying to squeeze him into the ministry of pastor because they know, knew no different, and Supposed to begin with, neither did William, except he had this, this desire to see souls saved. At the Methodist annual conference in 1861, things came to a head. Booth requested uh, that he be released from local pastoral oversight to be set apart as a roving evangelist. Well, they refused his request, even though he pleaded with them. Uh, they refused his request to be a preacher, but they refused it by promoting him. I think they were hoping that, hey, let's just keep him happy. We don't want him going out evangelizing. Uh, that's what the primitive Methodists are doing. Uh, so what can we do to keep him? He's not happy. Give him a pay rise. Give him a, give, give him a title. So they promoted him to the superintendency of the whole of the Newcastle district, only permitting that he could take on evangelistic work only in his spare time. The administrative burden that this position would have carried, however, would have meant that Booth would never effectively have been allowed to move out in evangelism. Well, they voted on, on, on this, whether he should be the superintendent, and uh, as they voted, uh, it was clear that he had got this big job over this vast area of one of the most popular uh, the most uh, popular Methodist areas of England around Newcastle. As the vote was carried, Catherine Booth, his very strong-minded and God-loving wife, was in the balcony watching the whole proceedings. And as they declared that he would be the superintendent of the Newcastle district, she, shud she stood up and shouted at the top of her voice, no, never. Uh, in Robert Sladen's book on, uh, that includes an excellent chapter on William Booth, he quotes her as standing up and saying, hell, no, um, which sounds a bit better, doesn't it? <laughs> and um, within two months, Booth had resigned from his position in the Methodists. At the age of 32, he stood now at an open door of his real destiny. He began to minister in revival, and the first place that he went to was down in Hale in Cornwall. This literal revival lasted 18 months. Fishermen would row 10 miles to hear William and Catherine preach and minister. Shops would shut for the services, and by the end of that period, that revival of 18 months, William Booth estimated 7,000 Cornish people had been converted. He was invited to take some tent meetings in London, and that's really uh, one of those that was taking place is, is behind me. And it was there that he first, in some spare time, walked down London's famous Mile End Road. Anyone ever been to Mile End? Got off at the tube station, I got up onto that road. Well, it was on that road that he really discovered 
his calling. Now, that sounds a bit crazy to say, really discovered his calling, when you can see a picture of him preaching and, and he's carrying revival down to Cornwall. It's amazing, really. William Booth could have had whatever he wanted. I mean, I mean he was, he was at a, at a, in his 20s, he could have been superintendent of a, of a whole metropolitan area of Newcastle. He could have preached wherever he wanted. He was down in Cornwall. You saw what happened in his first revival. I mean, whatever he wanted, you know, humanly speaking, he could have got with his incredible preaching gift. And so here he is. He could, the world, if I can put that phrase, the world, the Christian world was at his feet. And here he is walking around one of the, if not the, worst sin-ridden road, not just in London, but in Britain and perhaps the world. As he walked down Mile End Road, he saw the lives that the poor were, were, were living. And uh, got a picture, which isn't quite, well, it might be Mile End. This is a, a very famous picture. It's a, little, it's a little bit earlier than the 1800s. These are the mid-1700s. There was a man called Hogarth, a fascinating uh, historian and artist. And what he used to do is Hogarth used to um, draw pictures of the squalor and, and, and terrible state of the poor living um, in, in London. And, and behind me here, I think this is the picture, Gin Alley. Uh, and this was the sort of scenes that William would, would see. As he walked at night, he saw homeless orphans searching for rotten fruit left in the gutters. He saw five-year-old children passed out in the bar rooms of the gin joints, drunk from drinking gin. Many of them would die within a year or two of cirrhosis of the liver. These are five-year-olds. Gin joints, as they were known, were all over London at this time. In fact, these gin joints... They had special steps up to the bars for children to climb up to, to order their gin. And the pubs sold special penny glasses of gin for children. Booth saw, and then I'm quoting from one of his biographies, Booth saw, quote, mothers forcing beer from white chip jugs down babies' throats. Outside pub after pub, silent savage men with ashen faces, coats piled nearby, lunged and struck and toppled heavily and watching women face his animal with passion scream, strike, strike. Beyond the intense white glare of naphtha, men passed furtively, blood-soaked handkerchiefs cloaking the shivering bodies of dogs that had lost a dogfight. Goldfinches, birds, blinded with red-hot needles to make them sing better, twittered in cramped cages." Many of the rich in London used the poverty-stricken areas as their playgrounds of vice. Child prostitution was more than common. Virgin girls were sought out to give to paying gentry. Gambling dens, cockfights, backstreet abortions, and terrible, terrible poverty, sickness and disease was widespread. In 1865, of the three million people in London, 100,000 of them were literally walking the thin line between poverty and starvation. This was the London of Charles Dickens. Anybody ever watched the film or read the book or seen the play Oliver Twist? Well, that is a tremendously realistic representation of what was taking place. I mean, Charles Dickens, a wonderful novelist, but an incredible social commentator. I mean, he shocked he shocked not just Great Britain, but the world, because a lot of the aristocrats and the people with finance and power and influence, uh, they just kept these pores in the slums. You know, like sometimes when you go to, to different areas of the nation today, some of the world today, like India or, or, or Egypt, the slums are sort of like pushed into a corner where, you, where if you've got money, you don't have to visit. You just, you, the most you see them is on the roadsides, you know, begging for money, and you just ignore them. They're pushed aside. And so when Dickens wrote, he brought these powerful pictures of abuse and poverty and terrible human conditions um, right across to, to, to the middle classes in their parlours. 
As Booth wandered through these scenes of London, the Holy Spirit began to take hold of his soul in a powerful way. Booth returned home after this walk at midnight and woke his wife up and said, Darling, I've found my destiny. So it was that William Booth, the great revivalist and evangelist, who would probably make a chapter in this book, even if he'd stuck to preaching in churches and doing revivals. If he'd kept doing what he was doing, he would have probably been, been up there, and well, he, well, he still is, but, but in the sense of Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher in London. Um, but he decided that his new congregation would be Mile End in London. In fact, there's a pub in Mile End that you can find. I've forgotten the name of it. And there's a plaque outside which says that outside this pub, uh, William Booth used to, used to preach. And so, the next day, he took his Bible, he went to Mile End Road, and began to simply preach the gospel on the streets. And this early pioneering work in the East End was rough and heavy going. It wasn't like preaching down in Cornwall. Uh, and uh, the devil wasn't easily, wasn't easily going to give up his favorite road in London. Booth had gone deep into enemy territory. A famous quote from Booth is this, go for souls and go for the worst. Well, he was certainly doing that. Each soul was won through costly intercession and time-consuming hard work. Like so many revival moves of God, the early days, now listen to this, the early days were hard, unfruitful, and extremely discouraging. When we often hear about the revivals, we, we almost shortcut to the glory days when everything was going well and the Holy Spirit was moving in great power. We forget, most, most, most of, our, of revivals are pioneered in very, very hard ground, very, very difficult circumstances until there's suddenly a breakthrough that takes place. As he preached there, he would risk death, death um, violence. He would often return home after midnight, bruised, bleeding, his clothes torn as he'd been assaulted whilst preaching the gospel on the East End streets. Sometimes he never returned home at all. He just stayed out all night ministering. After one year of this very hard work, himself living on the poverty line with his wife and his six children. He had only, after one year, only 60 disciples. It's enough to take you back to Cornwall and start another revival crusade, isn't it? Think of that. Think of the mentality that's here. 7,000 souls in, in a year and a half in beautiful, lovely Cornwall, Cornwall with fishermen rowing to hear your gospel. The head of the whole Methodist movement in the Newcastle area. The invitations to any church that he wanted. A wonderful, blossoming career. He, he, he could have he made an impact and at the end of his life everybody would have said, wow, what a great gift of God. And here he is, one year... 60 disciples, six children and a wife to feed, and they are sometimes going without food. One of his co-workers, right in these early days, is a name that might be familiar to you, Thomas Bernardo. You ever heard of Bernardo's Children's Charity? Well, Thomas Bernardo was one of the early companions of, uh, William, uh, of William Booth at this time. And uh, Bernardo was going to branch out from Booth and became a specialized children minister. Uh, doc, uh, uh, Booth said to Dr. Bernardo, he said this, quote, You look after the children, I'll look after the adults, then together we'll convert the world. Don't you love the faith and audacity here? And uh, he would found an organization that would care very soon for over 164,000 orphan boys. Powerful early days. Christians began to join Booth's work because they saw the great thing that he was doing. It was the gospel at the true cutting edge. When Jesus said that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, that word poor does not just mean 
mean everybody. There is a bias to the poor. Sometimes scholars have tried to make that poor, just so we know, just the common people, and, and lose it of its radical edge. Uh, the gospel works best with the poor. In fact, it's always a surprise when a rich person gets saved. How hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? And anybody that ever read the epistle of James would almost marvel that any rich person would get saved. No, there is a bias of the gospel to the poor, the outcast, those that are not famous, those that have little in this world, and uh, here, here was William Booth. So people would join him and say, this is a great work, but many couldn't take the work. Many found it too hard, the persecution too hot, the fruit not fast enough, not enough, not enough breakthrough to keep them going. But the Lord, I think, must have taken pity on Booth and felt that he'd taken enough beatings because he granted to him a convert who was a famous Irish prize fighter, the toughest sort, named Peter Monk. And so now, when Booth went out onto the streets, he had Peter Monk by his side, and uh, Peter became his private bodyguard. And whenever a crowd grew potentially violent, as it often did, fueled through gin, Peter, noticing that the crowd was getting a little bit violent in its, in its intentions, would simply roll up his sleeves and patrol the meeting, whereupon the meeting suddenly returned to a state of quiet respectability. They all knew who he was. Eventually, some rich benefactors began to get behind Booth's work, easing his own personal poverty and lack of ministry funds. Slowly but surely... Booth began to get a toehold, notice that, a toehold in the East End that became a base camp to touch the rest of London. Not content with one area, he began to open what he would call stations in other areas of the capital. As, uh, as most of the established churches would not accept his converts, uh, they were far too respectable for the people getting saved in the East End, he therefore kept them and discipled them. Booth began to focus on the pubs and the gin shops, the engine room of London sin, of which there were over 100,000 at the time. In East London, every fifth shop was a pub or a gin palace. Breakthroughs began to happen. And the breakthroughs began to happen when the new converts brought in more new converts. It's one thing to have an educated William Booth preaching the gospel to you on the streets, it's another thing to have somebody that you've known that lived in the area come back on those streets and preach the same gospel with a transformed Christian life. Booth soon learned that the best evangelist is a new convert who can pull out by his testimony and change life many of those that once fellow sinners. The worst sinners often make the most radical saints if they're properly discipled. Soon this band of ex-sinners that was growing and witnessing, uh, were, were being called the Hallelujahs. That was the first name for them. They didn't choose the name, but they were called the Hallelujahs because they had this habit of shouting out the word all the time. Hallelujah. They'd be shouting hallelujah in the streets. They'd be shouting hallelujah in the pubs. If you ever want to get a taste of what that's like, you can go out with the Sunday afternoon outreach team. Every Sunday afternoon, they go out on the streets and... Uh, uh, and they have no fear. They'll shout hallelujah, especially when someone is um, persecuting them. Now, these fresh people, they knew what it was to be freshly saved from sin. And so that was their first call to see other souls saved. One typical new evangelist advocated praying till your knees were petrified and preaching until you were too hoarse to make yourself heard. New stations were opened up in other cities. Evangelism was rough and to the point. No bridge-building, uh, uh, seeker-sensitive ministry here. Not that, that that's wrong. But th this was, uh, for example, their they would advertise meetings in local halls. And the, and the, and, and the adverts and the tracts they'd hand out would have on them, Come, drunk or sober. Many of the new converts felt such surges of joy as they received Jesus as their Savior. Each convert was not just left to their own devices, 
but visited once a week and personally discipled by Christians. At meetings, some would literally jump up and down for joy. During nine-hour prayer meetings, some fell under the power of God and were carried into rooms where they lay under the delivering and saving power of the Holy Spirit. Although one man cheekily insisted when he gave his life to the Lord, he insisted on giving the devil a fortnight's notice before converting. As an employer himself, he felt he would expect the same type of consideration. The Christian mission was what Booth named the Young Movement, and it became increasingly more militant. The more militant the people they saved, the more militant the organization became. When you are, you're saving ex-prostitutes, bare-knuckle fighters, people that, that have come from uh, the, the degradations and the hardcore radical side of sin, when, when they get saved, then they're not going to immediately become uh, middle-class dignified people. They, they, they took their extremities in, uh, in sin and converted them to extremities in righteousness. It was the only way they knew. They were all or nothing people. And uh, they, would, they, would, they would increasingly talk in more military terms. Uh, reports would be sent to the general sent superintendent, that's William Booth, of the Christian mi- mission, talking about siege operations against the devil and of converts being taken prisoner. One of Booth's best evangelists was Fiery Elijah. Fiery Elijah Cadman. Cadman began a gospel campaign in Whitby, North Yorkshire, putting up posters saying, War in Whitby, the Hallelujah Army fighting for God. Some of the residents of Whitby were so frightened that this meant violence that they left the town in terror. Cadman announced the coming of Booth. He says, the general of the Hallelujah Army. And 3,000 souls were won in that campaign in Whitby. God was obviously stirring some sort of martial spirit within Booth's ministry for that purpose. Now, the Christian Christian mission was ruled by an annual conference of 34 members. It was copying what would take place in the Methodist church. And this yearly committee was cumbersome and political as such things can tend to be. And uh, the radical ministers who were giving the movement such success grew increasingly irritated and impatient by this government by conference. This was not, they said, how an apostolic army should be led. George Railton, who was then writing to Booth, who when writing to Booth, insisted, Booth never told him to do this, but George Railton insisted on signing himself your devoted lieutenant and that the time had passed for long-winded government by conference. They had sacrificed their worldly interest to follow Booth. They believed that God had given him an anointing and, and, and a direction that they wanted to follow. None of them had bargained with handing their lives over to some committee's deliberation. Railton protested, We gave our lives to work under you and those you should appoint, rather than under one another. Another leader, Ridsdale, said, You tell us what to do and we will do it. I can't see all the good of a lot of talk. And with one warning, one thing, wanting one thing and one another, Booth himself had once said, if there'd, ever been a committee, if there'd ever been committee meetings in the day of Moses, the children of Israel would never have got across the Red Sea. The rule by conference was scrapped by Booth to great rejoicing by the will and drive of his people. And he was put in control of the movement just like a general. The question was, what should they be called? Um, the title Vol- Volunteer Army was first put forward. Um, but Booth's son Bramwell objected, stating that he was no territorial part-timer. He was full-time for God. Booth put a line through the word in volunteer army. He put a line through the word volunteer and wrote salvation. The salvation army was thus born in May 1878. Mission houses were turned into forts, and ranks and uniforms were introduced. We've got a picture now of some early Salvation Army members. The Salvation Army motto, as we saw at the beginning, was blood and fire. 
the blood of Christ's atonement that saves, and the fire of the Holy Spirit that fills his church to be witnesses to the end of the earth. They had an evangelistic newspaper that they would take into the pubs and the gin joints, and it was called, can anyone tell me? The War Cry. What a great, what a great, I mean, we think Revival Times is good. I think The War Cry is far more extreme, isn't it? <laughs> Salvation Army bands grew. And what these bands would do is that they were, they were birthed to draw crowds. Everybody loved music. And so they would, they would draw crowds by playing popular music hall songs, popular songs in the pubs. They would take these tunes and they would change the words to have Christian meanings. So people would hear these popular Top of the Pops, if you like, tunes. And they would go, oh, I know that tune. And when they come there, there'd be the Salvation Army brass band belting out the tune they know, but with totally radically different words. Booth, the original quote, uh, you, you might have heard this quote before, Cliff Richard used to use it a lot, but the original quote came from Booth, who said, why should the devil have all the best tunes? In 1879, 81, one year later from the, the, the actual name, Salvation Army, in 1879, 81 battle stations existed with 120 full-time evangelists and nearly 2,000 voluntary speakers. The Salvation Army was starting new battles in new cities every week. Converts literally began to flood into the kingdom of God. But the battle against the devil over these souls was, was fierce and opposition strong. Persecution grew as their success grew. And uh, gangs would, would hurl missiles and salvation at the Salvation Army and attack them physically. On his way to a meeting in Sheffield, someone spat on William Booth. But as one of his men was about to clean it, the general said, don't rub it off. It's a medal. The Salvation Army was taught, and it had to be taught, to respond non-violently, because many of them had come from a violent background, so they had to be taught to, to, to respond non-violently and to turn the other cheek. But this didn't always happen, because they were a fiery bunch. One woman in Manchester could take no more of one particular taunter, who said, here's a woman who can work miracles. She grabbed the man by the scruff of the neck, and as she threw him downstairs, cried out, I can't work miracles, but I can cast out devils. In 1882, 669 Salvation officers were brutally assaulted, and 60 Salvation Army buildings destroyed in one year. These people were at war. Susanna Beatty became the first Salvation Army martyr at Hastings. Thugs threw a hail of rocks onto her, kicked her in the womb, and left her dying in an alley. It was not only for themselves that they would face danger. The Salvationists understood that the whole family was part of the eternal struggle of evangelism. This is how the Salvation Army used to dedicate their children. You've ever been to a morning service here at KT and see a baby dedication? Well, how about these words that we would ask the parents to say? They had to respond in the affirmative. They had to say yes to these dedication words. Family, there they are. They've got the lovely baby. I'm holding it. And I turn to the uh, parents and I say, you must be willing that the child should spend all its life in the Salvation Army, wherever God should choose to send it, and that it should be despised, hated, cursed, beaten, kicked, imprisoned, or killed for Christ's sake. Do you agree? Yes. Ah, oh, what a lovely baby. There you go. There's a dedication certificate with those pledges that you've just made in the foyer at the end of the service. Opposition to salvationist work was often planned with great strategy and organization. If we can have the next slide. The next slide behind me is an interesting slide. Um, Punch was one of the uh, greatest satirical magazines of the time, a very funny magazine that would reflect on what was going on in society and, and pulpits. And, and I, I think you might be able to see, but what you've got here is, is the quote here is at the bottom, 
with this picture, a quiet Sunday in London, or the day of rest, you know, the Sabbath, a quiet Sunday, or the day of rest. And what you've got here, interestingly, is if you can see some flags here at the top, at the Right at the back here, you won't see the detail, but right at the back here, there's a huge big banner, and it says, Blood and Fire. And in front of it, and here in the forefront, you've got some of the women of the Salvation Army, and the bands are there, and they're praising God, and they're witnessing. Now, if we go over a little bit to the left, you've got the opposition. And up there, in a, fla in a flag, just above where I, where I am, by the White House, there's a flag, and that says, skeleton army. You know there was a salvation army? Well, there was also a skeleton army. And this skeleton army was launched and funded by many of the breweries and the pub owners and the gin joints. Why? Because the salvation army were in direct competition with the alcohol trade. Because they were getting people saved and people were getting saved and people weren't going back in to order a drink. People were going back in to pull other people out to get saved. And uh, the Salvation Army were doing such a good job that it was hurting their trade. And so what they would do is that they would, they would hire literal thugs and gangsters and pay them to march against Salvation Army depots. That's why we saw so many of them destroyed in that one, one year. They would be paid to disrupt whatever the Salvation Army were doing. They even adopted a banner, as we can see behind us, the skeleton army with, with a cross, a skull and crossbones and devil as symbols on them. And, uh, you know, sometimes there would be near riots. Just as a quiet Sunday in London. Wouldn't it be great to see those days back again? To begin with, general public opinion was against the Salvation Army. They were seen as do-gooders, moralizers, and interferers. Even the police would often fail to protect Booth's workers or give them any type of protection or justice. They got what they deserved. And it seemed to, be, to begin with that the Skeleton Army was simply teaching these over-religious Pharisees, upstarts, a lesson. But however... Uh, with the skeleton army becoming increasingly more brutal and vicious, people began to turn and become sympathetic to the Salvation Army. Of course, it's one of, one of the most loved charities in the nation today, isn't it? Uh, I, think, I think everybody loves the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army didn't, of course, just preach to the, to the, to the poor. Next slide, please. But it ministered to their social needs. And what we have here is the late 1800s, and uh, this is Victoria Embankment, and uh, these are Salvation Army officers. You see the soup. This is a soup run. All these people, hundreds of them lining up to have the only meal that they would get um, each day. It was uh, William Boo that said, you can't preach the gospel to a man on an empty stomach. Forced prostitution, we've always me already mentioned, was rife in the cities of Britain. Young girls were taken from the countryside, enticed to the town, with promise of employment as maids, but on their revival would be raped and forced to become prostitutes. To stop this evil trade, rescue hostels were set up for the prostitutes so they could break out of this vice trap. And Salvation Army secret agents went undercover to expose vice rings and to bring them to the public awareness. William Booth and the Salvation Army lobbied Parliament strongly about these social issues. And in 1885, the Salvation Army won a victory, causing legislature to be passed in government, staffing out, stamping out the trafficking of young ladies. It's fascinating how today a lot of Christians are involved in trying to stamp out uh, modern-day trafficking of sex slaves, aren't they? And uh, ruling that the age of consent for sexual intercourse was to be 16. It, 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 there was no ruling before that. Shelters were set up for the homeless and destitute to use for sleeping and washing. Eating houses set up for the poor to have decent meals at low cost. Soup, soap, and salvation. That's what the uh, Salvation Army's preached. Soup, soap, and salvation. And there's been dangers in, in modern times where um, they've missed the last one off. 
not all Salvation Armies, but some at times in modern times have focused more on soup and soap. But uh, many, there's many still out there that preach the gospel powerfully. Well, William Booth died in 1912 at the age of 83. During his ministry, it's estimated that he traveled 5 million miles and launched the Salvation Army in 58 countries. On his deathbed, all he could think of was of the homeless of the world. And he made his son Bramwell promise to do as much as possible for them. His ministry touched the highest and the lowest of the land, as evidenced by a wonderful conversation that took place at his funeral. Queen Mary arrived at his funeral service unannounced and disguised. She took a seat at the back next to a very ordinary lady. This is the queen. The woman turned to the queen, she didn't know who she was, and told her how she'd been a prostitute but was rescued by the Salvation Army. General Booth had said to her personally, my girl, when you get to heaven, you have a place of honor because Mary Magdalene will give you one of the best places. The woman told the queen, he cared for the likes of us. The Salvation Army is one of the most respected Christian organizations in the world today, operating in over 102 countries worldwide. To give you an idea of the scale of its ministry, today at Christmas time, nearly 6.5 million people in need are helped, and over 248,000 prisoners are visited worldwide each year. I want to end by, by reading um, directly from William Booth himself, to give you a picture from himself of what drove him. He was moved, as we can see, by the, uh, the, the, the uh, we'll go to the, 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 final, um, the final slide, the vision of the lost thing. He was, he was moved by the lost, and, and actually, he had a vision of the lost at one stage while he was um, in a train. And I'm just going to read his words to you in, in conclusion, this vision that he had, a very famous vision. On one of my recent journeys, as I gazed from the coach window, I was led into a train of thought concerning the conditions of the multitudes around me. They were living carelessly in the most open and shameless rebellion against God, without a thought for their eternal welfare. As I looked out the window, I seemed to see them all. Millions of people all around me, given up to their drink and their pleasure, their dancing and their music, their business and their anxieties, their politics and their troubles. Ignorant, willfully ignorant in many cases, and in other instances knowing all about the truth and not caring at all. But all of them, the whole mass of them, sweeping on and up in their blasphemies and devilries to the throne of God. While my mind was thus engaged, I had a vision. I saw a dark and stormy ocean over it, the black clouds hung heavily. Through them, every now and then, vivid lightning flashed and loud thunder rolled while the winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed and towered and broke, only to rise and foam and tower and break again. In that ocean, I thought I saw myriads and thousands of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning as they cursed and screamed. They rose and shrieked again, and then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this rock I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform I saw with delight a number of people struggling, drowning wretches, continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued industriously working and scheming by ladders, ropes, boats, and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there, there were some who actually jumped into the water, regardless of all the consequences in their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hardly know which gladdened me most. The sight of the poor drowning people climbing onto the rocks, reaching the place of safety, or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those 
whose whole beings were wrapped up in this effort for their deliverance. As I looked on, I saw that the occupants, occupants of the platform were quite a mixed company. That is, they were divided into different sets or classes and they occupied themselves with different pleasures and employments. But only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get people out of the sea. But what puzzled me most was the fact that though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people didn't even seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care, about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes, many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and even their own children. Now, this astonishing unconcern could not have been the result of ignorance or lack of knowledge because they lived right there in the full sight of it all and even talked about it sometimes. Many even re went regularly to hear lectures and sermons in which the awful state of these poor drowning creatures were described. I have already said that the occupants on this platform were engaged in different pursuits and pastimes. Some of them were absorbed night and day in trading and business in order to make gain, storing up their savings in boxes and safes and the like. So there is an extract of a vision that William Booth had where he saw clearly the state of the world. Well, that's where we're concluding this short series where we've uh, had a look at some of the revivals and moves of God that have taken place over Great Britain. Remember, you can get the book. It's only three pounds there if you want to follow uh, this up in more detail. Next week, we have our six o'clock Easter concert. And then the Sunday after that, we'll be starting a new series that will be going deep into the Bible on spiritual warfare, what it is and what it isn't and how we wage it. God bless you.